This is Inside Inkeeping, a podcast from InPartners on the ins and outs of the inkeeping industry. Here's your host, Megan Smith. Hi, this is Megan. Thanks for joining us today for a conversation that's all about combining your passions in life with your inn or bed and breakfast and how you can enjoy both. My conversations today are with two people from totally different spectrums in the industry. Our first conversation is with Nikki Harth, who started Surf House Boutique Motel and Surf House Adventures with his family to clearly follow his passion for surfing and for the San Diego area. Our other conversation is with Phil Jenkins, who many of you know from his career spanning years owning countless inns and his positions within our industry. Currently, he is innkeeper at Deerbrook Inn in Woodstock, Vermont, where he has been able to combine his passion for piano and entertainment with his property. Hopefully, this conversation will inspire current innkeepers to look back at the things that they were passionate about before they became busy innkeepers and figure a way to tie that into their current ends, and also for prospective innkeepers who might not be thinking along the line of taking what you like best and turning that into an amenity for your guests. Hello, this is Megan, and today we are headed to the West Coast, a little north of San Diego in... Encinitas. Encinitas. So this is going to be a wonderful podcast today. I am talking to Nikki Harth, who is, from what I'm reading, 26 years old. I'm not sure that's still the case. 27. 27. And he and his brother, Sander, have followed their passion. They grew up as surfers, and now they have bought a motel and refurbished it and are running it, as well as running a business promoting surfing and instructing surfers to put heads in their beds, it seems like. I do want to say one thing before we get started, because this is the greatest tagline I have seen. It's hashtag Stokecation, an epic vacation at Surf House during which you are perpetually stoked. I love that. I just think that it says it all right there. And if people could see you in person like I am right now, they would totally understand why I say that is just perfect for you. So. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about what you've done, what brought you to what you're doing. Just tell us your story. Yeah. So um, actually, my brother and I, we were born and raised in Encinitas, only a mile away from where the property is. So it's been really fun just being able to get back into the community with that. Yeah, born and raised in Encinitas. My mom is from Norway and my dad is from Connecticut, but they met out in San Diego. And um, growing up, we always had a lot of family coming out to visit. And they would all come from Norway. They all did the San Francisco, rent a car, drive down to LA, Mm -hmm. go to Vegas, fly home. And we started convincing them. I was like, no, like you need to spend two, three days extra in San Diego with us. And almost every family that came and stayed there was always their favorite part. So as I grew up, grew up obviously loving surfing in Encinitas. It's one of the top 10 surf towns in the world, named by a couple different surf magazines and National Geographic. Yeah, it's just a, it's a cool little 60,000 people surf town. Like if the waves are really good one day, some of the restaurants close up so everyone can go surfing. And... Do you remember growing up? Was it a economic hub or have you sort of helped with that in your business? Um, I wouldn't say that we helped with it, but growing up, it was pretty slow. Like I remember in high school, you're like, oh, there's nothing to do around here. All you have is $10 in your pocket to go eat burritos and surf. But after I left for college, I went to San Luis Obispo in Central California. Yeah. And um, every year I came back, there was always like new bars opening, new restaurants opening, new shops, and just a lot more money was being reinvested into the community. And it was all locally owned bars, people that we grew up with, their families were reinvesting in the community. So how did this property come about? 
actually I went to South America for 10 months and traveled around after college. And when I was down there, I kind of realized that Encinitas didn't really have any accommodation that was friendly for travelers, like more adventure travelers or people that wanted to come because it's such a surf hub. People wanting to come would be staying in like a roadway in that was like $40 a night and just yeah. tell people don't touch anything in there. Yeah. Or like there was resorts nearby, but those are like $250, $300 a night and most surfers can't afford that. So my brother and I started a surf camp first called California Surf Adventures and we recruited people. We mainly got people from the UK and from Scandinavia, all 21 and up. They'd come out, we'd put them up in one of the better hotels in the area for a week and it would include surf guiding every day, breakfast provided in your room, five dinners out at different restaurants around town. Our tagline for that was your California family. So we were kind of mocking what we did for our actual family when they came out and visited, but had and people pay us. how old were you when you two started this? Like 23, 24? I was 24, oh and he's, he's only 18 months older. So. I hope you listeners out here are getting inspired. Wow. So we were we were running that for like two years. It wasn't really a full-time thing. I was still working valet parking on the side at a <laughs> restaurant on the beach, which was <laughs> show up an hour early for work and paddle out and surf and come in with salty hair and jump in fancy cars. That's right. Not a bad life. <laughs> no. So while we were running the California Surf Adventure camps, we started realizing like there's nothing nice to put people up around here. We were running these camps where people were paying us over $1,000 for a week and we're given six to seven hundred of that to a hotel wow. so it was kind of we kind of started looking like all right there's a real estate play with this like what if we had hosted these people and then they paid us and then we paid us <laughs> to host them so um we just kind of started keeping our eyes around the around town it, we definitely wanted it to be in encinitas where we grew up and november 2015 we closed on the current property that we're in now it was the lucadia inn by the sea it was built in i think 72 and it was back when all that great construction was done yeah, in the I mean, 70s. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, it was disgusting. <laughs> when we got in there, it looked like no one had redone anything in that place since like probably the late 80s, early 90s. Oh, yeah. There was a hot tub room, which was really, really. This is very special. reminiscent of Vermont ski areas yeah. in, that were built up in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. So we got the property and what we thought would be a quick kind of six month mm. turnaround turned into probably 14 months of design and redoing electrical plumbing. So it was a lot more than we anticipated, but we kind of, after we started getting into it, we were just like, all right, we can either do it quick and make it look nice and just put lipstick on a pig, mm. or we could really get into it and invest a little more or something that five years down the line, we don't have to redo again. Don't go any deeper on this than you want but did you have the support of a bank were you doing this with so finance? it's a whole family project actually oh wonderful so my parents actually purchased the building and my brother and i own the operating business so there are nice. there are landlords where well, you could have could worse be landlords. Worse. Yeah. i don't know <laughs> sometimes it's almost better not to know we're not gonna play this for them <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so it was a whole family project on the remodel and what we kind of really focused on was we wanted everyone involved in it to be part of the community because then they would be a little bit more proud about working on it so first we had to come up with the name and the brand and everything like that. And we got connected with a guy, Mike Nelson, who lives three blocks away from us. Hadn't met him before, but got to know him. And he just knocked it out of the park. Like this first logo that he showed us was just like, oh, oh yeah, obviously. They got, you can see it on the website. It's like a surfboard, but it's got the key and the little roof on it yeah. as well. So surf house. Did he come up with Stokation? He did not come up with Stokation. Okay, just wondering. No. And then our contractor, we had an architect and designer and she is also lives in Lucadia 
this was like the first project where she was doing the exterior and interior, which I think she was very excited about because she does a lot for big hotels and stuff like that. But those are more just like design something and someone else comes in and does the rest. Right. And then our contractor, she also lives in Lucadia. So we just had a, a very like local community spirit around it. So you opened 14 months later. 14 months later. After and we talked it down a little bit. Studs. And we talked a little bit about um, when you first started, you put your rooms on Airbnb. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so we got connected. Um, we we're actually family friends with Chip Connolly, who was on the board for Airbnb, and he was connecting us just with everyone that we talked to. It was just so, so amazing. Yeah. And Cami Hauser was freaking rock star, yeah. getting us set up. And um, so when we or yeah initially set it up. All eight rooms were on Airbnb. Uh, that was the only way you could book. Like family, friends, if they reached out to us, we would do it on the side or something like yeah. that. But we wanted to keep it through Airbnb to keep it kind of. Well, it makes it same. easy for the payment. And yeah, everything. exactly. Like we, and they only take a three percent commission, so it's that's a credit card processing fee. Right. And then um, a big thing for us was it's free marketing. Mm-hmm. You have your listing on Airbnb, and there aren't that many in our town Airbnbs. So if people look, we have eight of the 20 listings that they're going to look oh, at. Oh, because you were by room. We yeah. had one by I room, yeah. I noticed that, yeah. Yeah, because each room is set up a little bit different, different bed setup or different artwork and stuff like that, so. And I really want to encourage people out there listening to look at the websites. Surfhouseadventures.com. Surfhouseadventures.com. We're still trying to get surfhouse.com. The, uh, <laughs> there's great photography around the project. So you do the international piece. I'm assuming you still bring in the internationals. For the surf camps? Yes. Last year during the summer, we did some of the surf camps. We ran a few of them. Uh, two of the rooms that we have on the property are bunk beds. Mm-hmm. So we get get four people out. They all stay in the same room. They surf together, dinner together, everything. Um, we ran those, but we kind of didn't really, like we had never run a hotel before. <laughs> and it was the middle of summer and we were running at like 93, 94% occupancy. So I was running around with like a chicken with his head cut yeah. off for a little bit, but... Can surfing, so can you do surf camps in an off-season, like yeah. March when the Brits are free to go on vacation? Are you exactly, able to do yeah. them then? So we actually found our busiest week was in October. It was like the second week of October, and we had seven people all booked for that one camp. And we didn't really know why, but fall is the nicest time of year in San Diego. It's You don't get the summer crowds. It's right. It's really a, it's just consistent a nice weather. And, yeah. Well, I think that's, I, I think it's interesting because you can, you know, when you put yourself out there for advanced bookings, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're booking rooms for next summer and you don't even think, oh, I need to keep some rooms aside if we're going to run this other part of our business. Yeah. But it sounds to me like you have found a little bit of a balance. Yeah. So this, yeah, this summer coming up, we kind of just relooked at how we wanted to do our bookings and how we wanted to spend our time over the summer. So we're still offering like more custom surf packages. So if someone reaches reaches out and it's a father son, they want to surf, we'll build out a custom package for them. But they still have to book a room on their own. So it's not a full package with room, food, everything like that. It's just going to be custom surf trips. That's a, I mean, it's just a wonderful way to combine what you love to do and and a revenue stream. Yeah. If you're talking to some young person out there that might want to replicate what you've done, um, besides having to take the property down to the studs, <laughs> which people should expect, yeah. <laughs> really, if they buy a place that was built, especially in the 70s. Yeah. Um, is there anything else, any advice you could give about maybe something you would have done differently? Or do you feel like you pretty much kept on track? Um, I think we've been keeping on track pretty well. One thing definitely to note, uh, hospitality, you're always on. 
and people don't like to read emails, even though that's how you get into the room. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> people don't really enjoy reading all the details, but... They arrive and they can't get in. They can't get in. It's yeah. like, well, did you get the email? It's like, yeah. Did you read it? No. <laughs> that is a really good reminder because as inns and bed and breakfast put rooms on Airbnb, mm -hmm. it's a different customer. So when you have someone that books in an inn, they're usually looking for all those details. You might have a couple conversations with them before they arrive. Yeah. If they're booked on Airbnb, here they come. Instant gratification. Yeah, it's just, exactly. You and they it, don't, cool. Yeah, and if they pull up, they might read the email when they pull up to the door. Yeah. So, yeah, that and that is hard. And I think, especially when you are in a sport like you're in, which is known to be kind of laid-back people, and you kind of say, well, I guess they wouldn't have read that email. But then yeah. you think, why can't they just read the email? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, the whole time it's just been do something and then learn from it. So yeah. we started off with sending it because we have uh, access codes into every room, mm -hmm. and they're custom-made for each guest. So that activates on your check-in time, deactivates on your checkout time. So when you send that email to someone, what we found is through Airbnb, just tell them right away once they book, be like, hey, you have an email, you have to read the email. That's how you check in. Good for you. And like, we're excited for you guys to come. And then now like, people will still call me when they're standing at the door not knowing how to get in. So we have door hangers that we put like, hey, we're stoked you're here. Did you get our email? Like, Make sure you read that to know how to get into the room. I love that. That's a door hanger. Yeah. Read your email. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Well, I'm really so happy to hear your story. And for those of you listening, we're at a conference in Norfolk, Virginia. And Nikki's going to be speaking tomorrow to the group after only being in business a year or so. That's yeah. pretty admirable. So I'm going to catch his talk and I may bring him back up to bring make a few more points after I hear the talk <laughs> tomorrow. But thank you so much for sharing your story with me. It's really inspiring. And, and I hope some young people out there are listening to this and can realize a dream like you have because it's doable and it's a great way to live your life, right? Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Do you dream of innkeeping and owning your own inner bed and breakfast? In Partners recognizes the need potential in buyers have for information and education, not only in the early stages of considering this lifestyle, but for those who have made the decision to move forward. Our seminar for future innkeepers is a thorough overview for people at every stage of thinking about innkeeping. The first day covers the basic information needed to answer the fundamental questions operationally, financially, and personally, while the second day focuses on the details of models and income and expenses. This seminar will help test beliefs and models with the goal of developing individual acquisition plans. Call 877-957-2360 or visit us at www.inpartners.com for details on our upcoming seminars offered nationwide. Hi, this is Megan, and today I'm thrilled to be speaking to Phil Jenkins, who is currently the innkeeper of the Deerbrook Inn in Woodstock, Vermont. But this is Phil's fourth property and in addition to that, he has served as the director of Select Registry and run several regional tourism organizations. So Phil has so much to share with us today, and I'm going to focus mainly on the multiple ins and what keeps him going. And for those of you out there who are considering buying an inn or possibly transitioning to a smaller property or moving to a different part of the country, I think you're going to find Phil has a great outlook and some really good advice on how to reinvent the wheel 
time after time. Okay, so here we are, and we are going to start on the subject of multi-unit ownership, because I think so many people in this day and age aren't ready to necessarily retire from their inn, but they might want to change, want to move to another part of the country. So why don't you talk to me about the variety of inns you've owned, what has taken you to those properties. In my research, I read a story that said that this was your petite retirement project. So let's hear, why don't you start with your first property and just take it from there. Great. Well, thank you, Megan. It's an honor to be interviewed. This industry has been my life and passion for 25 years. And I feel no different today in my heart than I did, oh gosh, I'm sorry to say, 1991, <laughs> so, so long right. ago. Uh, but my original vision was actually to create a small collection of inns. At that time, we didn't have that phenomenon. And I just thought it would be pretty cool to um, develop the first project and get it to where I thought it needed to be from a quality standard and a guest experience point of view and, and attempt to replicate it. After I got it to, in this case, the first in, getting it to the four diamond, four star level, uh, which we were honored to attain and sustain for 11 years, it was this through learning experience that, okay, now what am I going to do? Am I going to continue that vision of now getting another one and another one and another one? And I became very selfish about the whole reason why I was driven to do this. It had to do with interacting with people every day. And I didn't realize that in the beginning when I was creating the vision. I had no idea that my life was going to be so fulfilled by the daily experience and I didn't want to give that up. So I didn't know how physically I could go invent number two and number three and number four and sustain that level of engagement, I guess, with my guests. Because in my opinion and experience, it's the engagement that creates the experience that creates the magic. Yes, I agree with you 100%. And so I never did the full-blown collection. However, after I arrived at the meeting the objectives of in number one with the four diamond and four star, in addition to the financial objective, I was ready to move on and develop another project, but not in concert with the first one. So I sold the first one, went on to the second one. Um, and the first one, by the way, was a wonderful old... Greek Revival antebellum mansion with 30-foot columns stretched around three sides. It, it really was the essence of what most people think of Gone with the Wind. What city was it in? It was in Macon, Georgia. Oh, my goodness. Just south of Atlanta. A very interesting experience there, um, and it set the tone for the next one. And so, you know, it was that experience that I learned about these four magic words, which are so simple that has driven everything that I've done since then. And those four words are, make me feel important. And, the, and let me explain that. I feel that every guest who comes through my doors, whether it's this inn or the first one in Macon, Georgia, are wearing an invisible sign. And that invisible sign says, make me feel important. I love that. And I trained my staff from the very beginning on that simple philosophy make me feel important. Each of them are saying that. 
And I also learned as I went along and hired staff, and the first in was 21 guest rooms, so it started out pretty large from a bed yes. and breakfast point of view. So we had, I don't know, 12, 15, 18 people. Um, I learned that each and every day, they too were wearing that invisible sign. They were simply coming through a different door, and it read, make me feel important. Mm-hmm. And if I was able to answer that question or that call equally and effectively with both sets Absolutely. of people, I would be able to create a magical successful end. Mm-hmm. Because the employees really, in my experience, really do come first because I couldn't always be there, mm-hmm. even though it was a small end. So they were carrying forth the vision of hospitality and what that meant. So the more I made them feel a part of the heart, they gave their heart. Mm, I love that. And so that has always stuck with me, make me feel important. And I was so honored just this morning when a longtime innkeeper, whom I've respected a long time, came to me and said, by the way, Phil, it came to my workshop last year and I ended it with that mantra. He said, I went right home, started integrating that in my training programs, and over the door where the servers go into the dining room, we have this huge sign that says, make me feel important. So I, I was so thrilled that somebody else really, really got it. Mm-hmm. And that's four words that everybody can remember. Absolutely. It was that first experience in Macon, Georgia, that fueled me further to the second end which was in Savannah, Georgia, which is just a wonderful place that everybody wants to be. And so I applied same kind of um, dynamics there and then kept that a shorter time because I met my objective. What I discovered in all of this, particularly number two, that I probably have more of a developer spirit than a maintainer spirit. So once I've done it and created it, and made it solid, and it could continue, hopefully, the little legacy that I've created, I'm ready to move on. So I was able to accomplish similar kinds of success with the second in, and then I made a huge move. Now, mind you, the first two were a large bed and breakfast. The first one, 21 rooms, then 19 rooms, um, not full service. And then I got this itch to have a restaurant. So my early mentor in the industry, called me up. She had just turned 80 and was ready to move on and um, asked me if I would consider purchasing her in. Took her two years to convince me to do that because it was in Ohio. I'm a Georgia boy. Plus it was right in the middle of Amish country. And most people would probably agree with me that I'm not a very conservative person. You don't fit in with the Amish? Well, you know, what ended up being there were such beautiful people, and I still have great friends that I left when I sold that in. But long story short, I did go ahead and I purchased that in, which was huge. You know, it was close to 40-something rooms and a 120-seat restaurant, then another restaurant in the summer. So I was running two restaurants simultaneously. I then, like everybody back in the early 2000 whatever was putting in spas so I converted one of my facilities into a full-time spa and you know it was one of those interesting well let's just do it you know but I ended up uh, with that many rooms and that many restaurants and auxiliary uh, amenities you know I had 65 employees Mm. 
So it's a whole different dynamic when you have that many employees. And it moved me further from the importance of engagement than it was from the, in the beginning. But I, I went there on a seven-year strategic plan. And by the way, my past life was strategic planning in a consulting firm, da-da-da. So I applied that and I met every objective in seven years, most notably financially, and I sold it. And that must have been right before the recession. Oh my, yes. Because that was the year we sold too, yes. I think the crash happened the same month we were supposed to close. So the deal went away, but fortunately they came back six or eight months later and uh, it was much tougher at that point in time with financing, of course. So anyhow, that transaction happened successfully. Then I took a year and I continued to consult. Now in hospitality versus arts management, which was my first life. So all of a sudden, I was doing a lot of consulting for Select Registry, and there a lot, and they uh, then went through some transition, and uh, I think I was the closest warm body, (laughs) maybe available, who knew a little bit about the industry at that point in time. So I agreed to serve as the executive director uh, for, I guess it was two years. And it was during that time that I mean, I loved it. I absolutely loved the job. Um, that I got the itch to have that day-to-day guest experience again. Well, you hadn't owned an inn in Vermont yet. So. I had, that's it. <laughs> but we had, in the meantime, by the way, Megan, had bought a vacation home in Stockbridge, uh, up near our friends in, in Rochester. And so we had been in and out of the Woodstock area for 10 years. And I kept passing this little inn on Route 4 down from Killington. And it was beginning to look like it needed a little TLC. And I thought one day, you know, wow, it's only five rooms. That couldn't be terribly hard. I've had all these blah, blah, blah. So one day there was a for sale sign. <laughs> and uh, the rest is history. Um, bought it just uh, under two years ago, and we completely rehabbed it inside and out. So now I'm back to the serious engagement because in a small property like that, you know, unlike the larger ones we had, with five rooms, there's not a lot of cash flow to support, you know, full-time people particularly. So this is a whole new experience for me, is, you know, uh, an innkeeper that's running five rooms where you're doing most of everything. And I mentioned at some point along the way in some sort of workshop uh, that the real success in innkeeping is uh, finding the right balance between high-tech and high-touch. Oh, I like that. And, you know, that's been around for a long time. And in a small property like Deerbrook in Woodstock, I'm running from cooking breakfast to worrying about changing the pricing on some OTA platform. And you can't survive without giving at least equal attention to both of those things. The guest service piece, right? Mm -hmm. Which has always been my first choice and priority. But now, if I don't do the uh, as much attention as I should in the high tech piece, and it changes every day, you know, Google and all of the others, then I won't have people around to give the high touch to. Right. So it's a little bit of a catch-22. So this is my swan song. <laughs> we'll see. I'll talk the, to you in a few years. <laughs> the fourth the fourth and last in. Well, I think this is all very interesting. And I do want to go back to the multiple in notion quickly. Uh-huh. Is there one thing that you took with you throughout 
these experiences that you build upon, that you got better at? I'm sure you got better at everything, but I guess, is there any advice you could give to somebody? Yes. I got better about balancing my personal time with the demand of the job. And I think if there's one thing that uh, is a challenge for every innkeeper is that, is that it's a highly demanding job and uh, one must find time for themselves and with their partner. Because I've seen, you know, some people uh, have some difficulties around that, not just innkeeping, you know, where the work piece is such a huge driver that negatively impacts the personal relationships. And I think that's particularly true when both spouses or partners are running it. Yes. Uh, because you're together all the time. So I think I got better at that, um, both in terms of taking time for myself. I'm a musician, as, as you know. So I discovered that I need some fill time at the keyboard. We all bring different gifts to the world, right? Yes. And so innkeeping allows an opportunity, a space to be filled by some uniqueness that you or others bring to the world, and in this case, my inns. And so I do feel that I was blessed to have music in my life and a family who started that tradition, my mom in particular, and I was I was actually full-time in church music for a long, long time and was a choral conductor with the symphony choir in Detroit. And I, you know, it was, initially it was all classically based. Uh, then I began to discover this thing called jazz mm. and new age and discovered actually at one level that I was the worst piano student in the world. I never, never wanted to play what was written exactly the way the, the page read. It was always finding, it's like a little bit like cooking now. Right. You have a basic recipe and then you want to try a little of this and a little of that and it's experiment. Well, I found in my uh, music life that I was interested in improvisation. So what I would do, my piano was already there, and so we offered every day what we called a hospitality hour. Around cocktail time, but we called it hospitality hour. And all my ends, I've been fortunate that we had um, a, a liquor license, uh, and even in Vermont, now a beer and wine license. So, you know, the evening was put together to include good spirits, good food, and good music. I mean, it's called a party, you know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I just decided that uh, it was something that I could share with the guests that I was very comfortable at doing. And and, and I'm not talking about a whole evening. Um, although in my larger inn in Ohio, I did music every Friday and Saturday night in the dining room. But in the beginning, it was only just, you know, a, a few Cole Porter tunes. Mm -hmm. You know, just a gathering, just set a tone of... Yeah joy really and 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 so invariably you know one of the guests would sing and discover oh my gosh we've got a singer here and it was always a little bit risky because you weren't quite sure what that might mean oh, yes. and would the other guests enjoy this or not and so uh, i was always uh, pretty much lucky that everybody was pretty good actually so I started every evening i sat down on the piano i had a concierge who was our little bartender 
and played a few Cole Porter, people start coming in. And, you know, m music is magic anyhow. Yes. You know, everybody loves it. And so um, I would play a tune or two and then go uh, chat with the guests and, and sip a little wine perhaps and go back to the keyboard and so forth. And there were many occasions that I can remember getting caught when people came back from dinner. Um, oh, Phil, can you play one oh. more song? And I can remember evenings, literally, while we were around, everybody was around the piano at midnight singing Hello, Dolly. Oh, my goodness. The poor guests who were already asleep somewhere else, you know. But um, So, you know, it became a little bit, for me, a hallmark of what I did every day. And, um, well, it kept you... It kept you current with what you loved. I mean, what a wonderful thing. Yeah, and it also gave me an opportunity to use that forum to connect with community, the mm -hmm. broader community. Yes. So, you know, I would um, be asked maybe to be a guest conductor of something, mm -hmm. you know, in the community. Or I would, um, you know, get involved with the local choral society on the board or do something I, I can remember my first in integrating the music is that we got developed a relationship with the local choral society and they were doing a, um, a tour of England like six or seven amazing cathedrals that this group was singing in and they asked me would I be willing to host a fundraiser at the end an English tea so I said, absolutely, of course. I'd never done an English tea in my life. I had no idea what the heck I was doing, but I had the perfect setting for it because the 1842 Inn in Macon, it was a grand old antebellum mansion. It was a perfect place for afternoon tea. I mean, I mean, I can't think of anything better. But I can remember the days when I thought, you know, I've got to go learn about tea. I've agreed to do this. I would find myself literally two or three times in a row traveling to Atlanta and going to the Ritz-Carlton tea in the afternoon. But I have to tell you a quick story about that. Uh, so I went up and I stayed three days to learn about tea. And on the third day, the same servers, and, and of course I was writing notes about, and drawing diagrams about how they served and all of this. It was so funny. I mean, I was enjoying it. All of a sudden this one very chatty, the server came over for the third. She said, Mr. Jenkins, we, we all are wondering, you're here for the third day and still making these diagrams and still writing. Are you a journalist? Are you doing an article on the tea program at the Ritz-Carlton? And of course I laughed and I told her what I was doing. I was there learning from the best. And she said, oh my goodness, I wish you had told us in the beginning, we'll go get Abrahina, which is a South African man, who ran the tea program. And I said, oh, no, 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 don't bother. Oh, no, no, no. He's got to hear this story. Abrahima came over. He said, I understand you're doing this tea program down at your wonderful inn and da-da-da. I said, yes, and I thank you very much for letting me be here and bothering your people. He said, I think we should do this together. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, he'd seen the pictures of the It looked like a little Ritz-Carlton, really, that mm -hmm. inn, because it was formal and so forth. And uh, he said, no. He said, I, I can think this is a wonderful marketing opportunity for the Ritz-Carlton that we do this in partnership. So it happened. Everything that we did with all the marketing, the announcements, uh, was the 1842 Inn and Macon in partnership with the Ritz-Carlton. Of course, I loved it. 
presents afternoon tea. And he even brought their sterling silver servers down with him. And we have been friends ever since. So, wow. anyhow, back to the music, as of course, we had three different chamber music groups come and play um, music of Vaughn Williams and some other English composers that played during uh, the afternoon tea. So that passion of music really drove some really interesting, even marketing mm -hmm. options and opportunities for me. Yeah, but you think the music took you to the fundraising, which took you to the tea, which then took you to the marketing. I mean, it it is remarkable how an interest can just transform a property. Well, I think that inns have the great capability and opportunity to interface mm -hmm. and be a driver for the creation of some really interesting things to happen in the community. I was very interested in gardening and art, and those were things that I was able to develop personally yes. while I had my property. Right. And then when I built my house, I was able to take those passions to building mm -hmm. my home. Owning an inn is almost like a backdrop, if you let it be, to just let your life grow from. I'm glad you said that, because I think that sharing your gifts, in my case, mm -hmm. the music, enriched the whole reason of why I was an innkeeper. Yes. You know, it wasn't just being an innkeeper. It was it was sharing my life and the elements of my life that was very internally important to me. And so therefore, um, it helped me balance the days when I thought, oh my God, if I have to cook one more breakfast, or we all go through those kind of things, Absolutely. you know, and particularly in foliage season or, you know, when you're really, really busy, there's just no relief and you think, oh my gosh, well, you know, sitting down and playing for those guests after a long, long day, somehow just made it all worthwhile. Yes, you know. I can understand that completely. So you will see at some point. There will be music in the Deerbrook Inn in Vermont. Yeah. All right, well, I'm coming in May, so we'll see what okay. happens. Okay, I guess I better get busy. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, and maybe thank when you. I'm there in May, we can find a few more subjects to talk about. Yes, that would right? be fun. Thanks Great. for coming by. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Inside Inkeeping, hosted by Megan Smith. Our show is produced by Katherine Hayes and Luke Stafford in partnership with InPartners, Mondo MediaWorks, and Megan Smith Consulting. You can find Inside Inkeeping on iTunes, Google Play, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Subscribe or stay in touch at InsideInkeeping.com. Thanks for listening.